Gittin, Perik Dalad, Mishnah Vav, 4-6. This Mishnah has several different topics, the first of which wraps up what we've been discussing the past couple of Mishnayas regarding Avadim, Jewish-owned slaves. And that first sentence really has nothing to do with Tikkunah Olam. Then we'll return back later on in the, in the Mishnah to other Tikkunos, enactments that were put forth for Tikkunah Olam. Here we say, Hamocher Avdalagoy. If a Jew sells his slave to a non-Jew, or if he sells his slave to even another Jew, but the Jew lives out of Eretz Yisrael, so then the slave goes free. Now let's just unpack that. There's quite a lot of details in what that exactly means. Um, what's underlying this Mishnah is two things. The first is that there's a basic kind of unwritten social contract between a Jewish own slave and his Jewish owner. And that's in place in as much as the Jewish slave owner has been entrusted with this person's life, this soul, and he's actually a, he's like a quasi-Jew already. He's obligated in mitzvahs, he has to keep Shabbos and kosher and so on. Um, so the, like, like a Jewish woman. So he has to ensure he can do those things. Now, that's the first premise here. And really, when a Jew sells his slave to a non-Jew, Usually in violation of that that uh, social contract, because now obviously what Shabbos going to look like for this slave now in the home of a non-Jew, etc. The second thing that's sort of underpinning this Mishnah is, and this also exists in the previous Mishnah, of course, is that um, when a Jew owns a, an Evid, a slave, so there's like two separate Kinyanim happening. There's a Kinyan that's in the guf, the actual essence of this person whom he owns, and that is like a Kinyan Iser that affects like all sorts of restrictions, like, you know, the halachas that kick in by virtue of the fact he's like this quasi-Jew. And then there's this other um, Kinyan, which is a Kinyan Mamun, it's like the rights to his as an economic, you know, mode of production, he owns the economic output of this person. The Jew owns the output. Now, when a Jew sells his slave to a non-Jew, he's able to transfer rights for economic output, essentially renting out the slave, if you will. But he can't release, the halacha doesn't allow, it's not such a thing, that the Jew could release his ownership in the person of the slave, in as much as those kinyane iser, the restrictions that apply by him being like a a quasi-Jew still persist, which means really, in fact, that the Jew who sells his, who attempts to sell his slave to non-Jew still owns the slave, just that he's sort of rented him out in perpetuity, such that the economic output goes to the purchaser. But there's still an attachment, ultimately, of the slave back to the original Jew owner. So now, the mission has two separate deals. The first is if a Jew sells his slave to a non-Jew, so that's going to work the way I described it a moment ago, that the non-Jew, I guess, effectively is like sort of rented him in perpetuity, but now the slave is still ultimately owned back by the Jew, and he's still like, he has those obligations, I'll call it to Hashem, that by virtue of the fact of him being a Jewish-owned slave who underwent, you know, immersion in mikvah for such and so on. So because the Jew is in violation of that social contract, he's obliged to not only release the slave from servitude if he comes running back to him. In other words, if the, if the slave escapes the Gentile master and comes back to the Jewish owner, the Jewish owner has to let him free. More than that, the rabbis actually oblige the Jewish owner to go and ransom, to, or whatever you call it, to be poda, to redeem, to repurchase, to reclaim 
his slave from that the Gentile purchaser. Um, and the halacha, even if it's 10 times the going rate, in other words, the slave is sold for $100, but the the owner is actually required to go back to the Gentile and get the slave back, even if he has to pay $1,000, only to then be required by the rabbi to let the slave go, because obviously this Jew was a bad custodian of this of this soul, and by releasing him, giving him a formal shechrur, he's lost being a slave altogether, he becomes a full-blown Jew, like any other like convert, he's a full-blown Jew. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that if a Jew tries to sell his slave to another Jew outside of Eretz Yisrael, even another Jew, so first of all, you're not allowed to take a slave out of Eretz Yisrael, because and that's what's underlying this part of the Mishnah. There's a there's a mitzvah to be in Eretz Yisrael. Now the truth is it's a machlokus rishonim. According to the Ramban, there's a mitzvah, like one of the six thirteen, to be be Yoshev in Eretz Yisrael. Mitzvah Yishev Eretz Yisrael to dwell in Israel is a mitzvah all to itself. And by sending a, the uh, the the slave out of Israel, you've sort of now deprived him of that mitzvah, which you have no right to do. Um, so that in of itself would be the violation. According to others, like the Rashbam, there's no mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael per se, but living in Eretz Yisrael is very fundamental to being Jewish, to the bedrock of being Jewish. Every Jew and every quote-unquote quasi-Jew of a, belongs in Israel as well. And in Israel, there are many mitzvahs that can be done only in Eretz Yisrael. Those mitzvahs that Tuluyas Ba'aretz, the mitzvahs that are dependent on being of Kedusha's Eretz Yisrael and so on. So take Trumas and Maestros, for example. So there's no way for the the slave to observe Trumas and Maestros and Chutz Laaretz. He's obliged to do those mitzvahs. You're depriving him of those mitzvahs. So either way, the point is, you're doing him a disservice in terms of his spiritual well-being. That's not allowed. So first of all, you cannot, you're not allowed to take a Jew, a, a Jew can't take a slave outside of Eretz Yisrael. Forget selling. If I just want to relocate from my home in Jerusalem to my new home or old home in uh, Cape Town, I'm not allowed to do that. And if I do do that, the, my slave can say, well, I'm not going with you, and I have to not drag him. I'm not allowed to take him with me back to outside of Eretz Yisrael. And more than that, if I sold the the um, the slave to a new owner who lives in Cape Town, so first of all, he doesn't have to go, but even if he does end up going, this halacha here is saying that the purchaser, the new owner in Cape Town, has to release the slave um, from servitude because a, a bad deal has been done to him as much as he, you know, he's like a quasi-Jew, and now he's forced to, to not keep the Torah as a Jew ought to, or as a quasi-Jew ought to, and by getting this, this um, by the new owner releasing him with the get he becomes a full autonomous, full-blown Jew, and then he'll go on with his life doing Torah mitzvahs as he's supposed to. Yatza ben Choren, says the Mishnah. So that's the first part of the Mishnah. Now, like, a new Mishnah effectively is beginning. In fact, in the Gemara, it's a new Mishnah starting here. Okay. Um... We return back now to the topic of enactments that were done to make the world a, a better place. These are things that are not Mishura Sadeh, not according to the letter of the law, but we, Rabbi said we should do them because um, of the larger picture, taking things into consideration and how society functions. So here what we're saying is, although there's a mitzvah pidyon shvuyim, to ransom, to redeem, to pay a requested amount of a kidnapped, abducted, captured Jew... That's a tremendous mitzvah at the top of the pile. A person is supposed to, the community is expected to essentially put all its money towards um, such a such a need, if, if need be. Um, notwithstanding, um, here the mission is saying that you shouldn't pay more than the fair price, I'll call it like that, of the captive. Um, the assumption here is that there's an active slave market and slaves have a fixed price and people know that people who are, you know, uh, 
you know, whatever it is, a Caucasian male and that's 35 years old, that's our captive. So then there's a going price for that on the slave market, whatever the story is. And you should pay that amount and not really more. And the halacha describes it even as if there's no active slave market here, there's some, some, there's one somewhere else in the world and you should go based on those prices. I can't say halacha lamais how to, how to interpret that because it's not obviously not really how the world works today at all. But the sentiment of our Mishnah is if you pay an exorbitant amount to the captors who have now, you know, captured and are withholding and are, you know, selling for ransom a Jew. If you pay an exorbitant ransom, that will induce the kidnappers and other kidnappers to do it again and again and again. So ultimately, while you might be saving this one poor Jew, um, you're endangering the lives of many, many more. And therefore, although of course, make Adin, should the community should do anything it can to ransom a captive Jew. You can't pay more than you know, roughly speaking, fair market prices, but pay tikkun olam because otherwise the world will become messed up and as much as other Jews will be in danger. The most famous story of this, I want to tell you, it's worth knowing, if you don't know it, the basic part of Jewish history. The Maharam Rottenberg, who was the Gadol Ador, the leader of Ashkenazi Jewry, he is, if I'm not mistaken, the Tosos on the on the page in Masechus Yoma and elsewhere. So the, and he was, so the Maharam, who lived in the 13th century, lived a long life, um, and from this German, German city of Worms, okay? But he has set up a yeshiva in his own home in a town called Rottenburg up the Tauber. Now, he, later in his life, like in his 60s, he, the incoming king, Rudolph I, he changed the rules and basically handed over the Jews to the treasury and the Jews essentially ran for their lives to, to get out of Germany over there. And an apostate Jew, like a heretic Jew, who was now a Christian, identified the Maram, to the authorities, and they abducted him, they kidnapped him, and they withheld him for a gigantic ransom. And the Maharam's Talmud um, is the Rosh, that was his prized Talmud, and the Rosh, the famous Rosh that we know and love, um, organized from the Jewish community there in Europe a gigantic ransom, tradition is 23,000 marks, you're talking like literally a couple tons of silver, a huge ransom, um, to get him back. But the Maharam himself refused to be ransomed, citing this Mishnah as the halacha. He said, listen, if you pay this princely sum to ransom me, other Jews and rabbis will be in great jeopardy. And therefore, the Maharama Rottenberg spent the last seven years of his life in captivity, being held for ransom um, until he died uh, in his 70s. And um, even then, only 14 years later, um, was his body ransomed by a fellow. I believe his name was... um, Alexander Ben Shlomo Wimfen, if I'm not mistaken. The reason why I remember that off the top of my head is because um, they both were buried side by side. This uh, The Redeemer, who purchases his body, said he would uh, pay the ransom on condition they could be buried together, and they were. And um, the oldest Jewish cemetery in Europe is in Worms. They're in Germany, and I've been there. And there is the Maram buried, and beside him is this Alexander Ben Shlomo Wimfen. Um, they're side by side. And um, it's a testament to really the the tzidkus of of the Gedolia Shul of time past and the amazing story of the Maram who lived up this halacha. Now, notwithstanding that, the that seems that the Maram acted according to halacha lamaisa, as the Shulchan brings it, lifnim mishur sadin. It seems that the consensus is that for extraordinary talmichachem, the likes of the Maram, the community should pay an exorbitant price to get him back. But the Maram didn't want that, didn't agree to that. And that's why he ended up dying in prison. At all events, not only is what I described to you sort of presumably, um, if a person 
wants to redeem himself. Notice he's being held captive for $100 million, and he has $100 million, and he's prepared to pay that to get himself out of um, the captor's hands. He is within his rights to do so. A, he's not putting a burden on the community, but more importantly, um, this is the principle of Chayach Kodmin, a person is allowed to take care of his own life and uh, and do what he's got to do to protect his own personal interests, so therefore it's permitted. Okay, the next line of the mission is, Ein mavrichin olam, a separate din, Jews have been held captive, should not be busted out of prison um, and, and freed because of tikkun olam. The thought here is that the captives were held in like a, uh, like I'll call a, a low security situation, um, which is more pleasant for them. If they end up, if the captors realize that when the Jewish captives are busted out by the IDF, they'll end up, you know, putting their feet into, you know, into cement so they can't go anywhere or chain them to the wall or something, which makes the captives' lives very, very miserable. Um, it seems, it seems anecdotally, to me it seems, that uh, typically Jewish captives were held in like a pretty low security situation. Why do I say that? Because you see, for example, stories like the Maharam, refusing to be ransomed, obviously they had some communication with him. And same goes with the stories of Rabbi Kiva being held in jail prior to his for his um, execution and so on. He was he was conversing and talking to people and so on. So you see that it seems to me that these captives are held in like, I'll call low security situations. And the thought was that if Jews are getting busted out of captivity, they'll be kept in a much more unpleasant setup. So for the sake of future Jews, Tikkun Olam, we don't bust the current Jews out of prison. That's the Tanakamashita. Rabbi Shem Gamil says no. He says he holds Omer Mipnei Takanas Hashvuyin. The reason why you don't break Jews held captive out of their captivity is not for the sake of future captives, should there be some. It's for the sake of the existing captives. Meaning, according to Rabban Shemagamil, you're allowed to break Jews out, but not if there are other Jews who are being held in captivity alongside them. Because the thought is that the captives who remain will have to pay consequences for the ones who were saved. And that's you're not allowed to do that for Tikkun There's a din, not a Tikkun Olam, but just a protection of the existing captives, um, so they shouldn't have a much, much worse. As you can imagine from these nightmare stories that talk about Nazi concentration camps and so on, where the people who escaped got away, but there was a big price to pay for the for the others held in captivity. So the halacha really is like from Shimon Gamaliel, meaning we don't take into consideration future captives, and if we can bust them out, we do bust them out of, of prison or captivity, so go IDF. Um, but uh, if we think it will jeopardize the life of others to stay behind, then we cannot save some at the expense of others. And that said, every individual is certainly within his rights to escape if he can, and, and presumably should escape if he can. Um, it certainly is a terrible moral conundrum if he knows that by his escaping, others will suffer, and then that becomes a complicated shayla that's above my pay grade and beyond the scope of our Mishnah here, that's for sure. The last part of a Mishnah, this is another topic here, a new Mishnah in the, in the Gemara, says, Ein lokchim, sorry, Ve'ein lokchim sfarim tefillin mezuzos minagoyim yoser al-kadeh damehen mepnitikuna olam. Well, there's a mitzvah that if a sefer Torah or tefillin or a mezuzah is being held by a Gentile, they've taken it, they've stolen it, whatever the story is. Um, there is a mitzvah to get it back from the Gentile, to pay a fair price to get it back, so they shouldn't come to bizayon, to disgrace. Um, but if you pay, like, Yosal Kadei Demeyen, some exorbitant amount, much more than they're worth, whatever that exactly means, um, much more than the going rate, so then that'll just induce more Gentiles to rip more mezuzahs off of more people's doors to 
sell them at a higher price and break into shuls and that kind of thing to steal the stuff. So that being the case, we don't pay an exorbitant amount so that we don't encourage future crime and theft of sfarim, tefillin, and mezuzahs. And again, essentially, that is that is the halacha. You can pay a, a little bit more, whatever that means exactly, but but not an exorbitant amount uh, at all.